Sunday afternoon, evening in New Smyrna Beach, and it's definitely Sunday fun day because I have had the distinct pleasure for the last couple of hours of hanging out with, drinking a couple of beers, enjoying some charcuterie on the front porch just north of Canal Street with none other than Marine Discovery Center's Jesse Wales. Welcome, Jesse. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so... Um, we are going to be doing the dinghy derby for the second time, and um, I thought it would be an awesome opportunity to get to know a little bit more about what you do at the Marine Discovery Center, because the whole idea of the fundraising behind the dinghy derby last year, and of course, we're trying to do more and better this year to, to fund what you're doing. Tell us a little bit about, and you can start with just simply, this is my title, and beyond the, you pick up the ball and run with it whenever somebody else <laughs> drops it, what are your core functions at MDC? So I, my title this year, because uh, it changes, is the Conservation Science Coordinator. So I focus on all of our shoreline restoration programs and all of our citizen science programs. So my goal is to really to get the community involved with what we're doing on the ground, with the research that we're doing, and getting them to understand the importance of this ecosystem in their backyard. Um, a lot of the people that I work with in New Smyrna are retirees who just moved down here from New York, South Carolina. They don't really understand the importance and the special, um, the, just this how special the Indian River Lagoon is to us. So being able to work with them and educate them has been awesome. Now, I think in addition to working with folks, like you're saying, that are, that are new to the area, that are retirees... You guys also have some programs in the local schools where you're reaching out and bringing the next generation up to speed with what's in their own backyard and, and the reason they should love it so much. Yeah, we have very extensive educational programs at MDC where we're focusing on getting kids from our local school systems, home schools, private schools, charter schools, pretty much anyone from the surrounding area comes to Marine Discovery Center at least once a year. They get on our boat, they see the dolphins, we teach them about the plants, the grasses, the birds, the fish, anything that we have in our backyard. And and educate them on it. And the kids absolutely love to get outside. We like to call them our hands-on feet wet programs because we get them outside, we get them in the lagoon, in the marsh, away from their phones, you know, away from the classroom, right. um, educating them on what, how special it is. So what would you say is the balance right now between like eco tours that you're putting on where it's just somebody that happens to be looking for something to do for the afternoon and they say, oh, I can go on a dolphin tour um, and actually having those curriculums and that outreach to local classrooms. What, what What's the balance, do you think? I would honestly say it's about 50-50. Okay. Um, our staff has done an excellent job of getting kids out into the lagoon in the morning and then having our eco-tours running for the general public in the afternoon. So some weeks we're running tours twice a day. Um, and it just depends on whether it's kids from the school or it's someone who happened to come upon the Marine Discovery Center is visiting New Smyrna and wants to check it out. Both of those are run by Florida Master Naturalist certified um, programmers, so they're able to go out and talk about all of the stuff that we're seeing um, based on what they've learned from the Master Naturalist program. I gotcha. So the Marine Discovery Center is located right off the North Causeway here in New Smyrna Beach. Um, it's got a very unique flavor and charm in the fact that it's the former site it of... Is. Of the New Smyrna Beach High School. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> and, and more so, you guys have taken that campus and you've returned a portion of it back to nature. 
We have. So the property itself is extremely cool. Back in the 50s, it used to be mangrove marsh. Then they filled it in using dredge material from the channel to create the property for the high school. So if you look at it on Google Maps, it's a perfect rectangle in otherwise a very mosaic, uh, puzzle-looking area. Um, so it's 22 acres total. We were able to tear down the majority of the building. So we're currently working out of the old administrative building on the high school. And through a grant with... Um, NOAA, St. John's River Water Management District, FWC, among other important partners, we were able to restore five and a half acres of it back to marsh. We used volunteers to plant over 2,500 plants, took us about 650 hours, and we brought it back down to elevation, created some tidal areas in there, uh, planted most of it with Spartina alterniflora. We've had mangroves naturally recruit in, and now five years later, we have birds, manatees, and fish using it as a natural resource. That's so awesome. When I go over there, I take bike rides, and I literally will go and sit and just watch. Me too. It's my favorite spot on the property. I, I have yet to catch like a redfish swimming through there, though I, I look at it and I know it's happening. It's just I haven't been there at the right time. Um, an inordinate number of shorebirds uh, use that. And I've been lucky enough on several occasions to see juvenile sea turtles that are all the way back in the creek system, yeah. back behind the MDC, cruising through, you know, coming in, I guess, from the inlet and spending, you know, their younger years here in the river. It's yeah. pretty cool. So you're not from around here. I am not. No, I'm a transplant. <laughs> All right. So tell me a little bit about where you're from. So I grew up right outside of Philly um, and moved down to Beaufort, South Carolina for my high school years. Uh, so it was really cool to grow up in the mountains and have snow days just to kind of be transplanted down in South Carolina next to a marsh. And suddenly, suddenly my snow days turned into hurricane days. Um, but it was really fun to kind of learn about the different ecosystems because I've been interested in that stuff since I was a little kid. Well, that was, that was my next question is, so at what point in your life did you become in tune with the outdoors was there a particular person in your life was there grandparents or a cousin or uncles that was like you know got you outdoors no it was um probably i think i realized i really liked it when all of my friends were busy riding bikes around the neighborhood and i was overturning all of the stones in my yard looking for salamanders <laughs> So I was that weird kid that wanted to go walking up the creek and look for different fish and bugs and, uh -huh. you know, uh, salamanders are my and favorite. Bring back yes, to the house. bring it back to the house, much to my mother's chagrin. But yeah, I would, um, salamanders, those are my jam. I loved looking for salamanders and putting them into tanks and taking them to school with me and hiding them in my desk and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, we were really lucky that we lived in a nice area that had woods out in the back so I could go out and, and look at the wildlife and just be in tune with nature. So obviously that's up in, in PA. In Pennsylvania, yeah. And then when I moved down to South Carolina, um, we had marshes as our backyard, which I learned very quickly that you're not supposed to walk on oysters. Uh, learned that the hard way. Sometimes a little sharp. Yep. Um, and the pluff mud will make you sink. So, <laughs> right. but um, it was fun to kind of find those tidal pools and hand capture fish as well. Yeah. So it, it was really fun. <laughs> you know, I, we, have, we have friends um, up in Charleston and Beaufort there in the low country. And I can honestly say some of the jealous moments that I have. Um, flood tides are, are super fun for us uh, to go fish. But more so, the, the thing that intrigues me is those really low tide situations where it's like almost like a, a canyon of a creek mm -hmm. and redfish get stuck in the back, you know, in a, in a deeper, you know, area back up in the creek I, I just saw on instagram earlier today or yesterday somebody posted uh some dolphins that had oh, uh, wow. cornered some redfish back in a creek and i mean the redfish were just dolphin snacks at that point it was pretty crazy but uh, so you are living in buford mm -hmm. um there in the low country you're you've kind of switched from that uh amphibian infatuation to uh hanging out in the marsh and, and and learning the you know the fiddler crabs and all the things that are going on when you are getting finished with high school did you know like when you were going to college that this is like 
the career path that you were thinking about? Yeah, yeah. My parents, um, they they realized that I was very into this from a young age, and I was very lucky that we lived close to a uh, state park that had a nesting sea turtle program. And they would take me out every Saturday morning during the summer months, because I couldn't drive yet, um, at sunrise to look for sea turtle nests. And that really sparked my interest. Um, So during the summer, I got a job at the local state park in their nature center, and I became one of their interpretive park rangers, teaching people about fishing and seine netting and sea turtles and everything that we had there. And that's when I realized that this is something that I could do as a career, and I wanted to. And being able to educate people, not from the area, about everything that I love has been so much fun. And I was able to do that right outside of high school before I went to college. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about sea turtle. Um, Do we have the same species nest here in Central Florida that you're going to find up in... South Carolina? Yes and no. Our um, The sea turtle that we mainly found up in Beaufort was the loggerhead. Okay. Very rarely we'd have leatherbacks come up there. Um, but down here in Florida, we have five species of sea turtles that nest on our beaches. Um, so it's been fun to learn about the different species and how often we see them. So by coming down here, you've actually increased the number of sea turtles that, you know... Like, that I've been able to see yeah, in person. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so you've you've definitely dialed in you're like okay this is my passion I can actually do something educationally with this know that I have a career path down the road and you end up where so I originally came down to Florida to Daytona Beach to go to Daytona State College um, got my AA there and was able to transfer to UCF went into their education program until I learned that they had an environmental science program Switch my major, I feel like, as everyone does nowadays. Um, and that was it. <laughs> Not just nowadays. <laughs> throughout time. <laughs> just switch your major, yeah. That's right. So we, I switched my major, and um, that was it. As soon as I found environmental science, I started taking classes that I loved. I got involved with some really great projects there. Um, was able to intern with their sea turtle group, uh, become part of their eco club, that kind of thing, and kind of expand my interest from there. So your internship took place down around, I believe you told me earlier, Sebastian Inlet? Yeah, down in Melbourne Beach at the Archie Car Refuge. So one of the highest density nesting beaches in the state of Florida for sea turtles. Was that something that you did year-round? No, while you were a student, or it was just during the summer just during semester? the nesting, yeah, okay. just during the nesting season. So we'd go out for three uh, days a week. We'd stay at this really cool beach house out there. Um, we'd go to work at nine p.m., stay up until about three or four, tagging sea turtles, looking for nests, sleep for two hours, and then get up at sunrise on our ATVs and count each and every single nesting track that we did that we saw from the night before and then the ones that we missed in those two hours that we slept. And then um, either we would sleep for the rest of the day and then get up and do it again, or we'd go out on the boat and um, catch juvenile sea turtles in the inlet. So, oh, wow. And then, so yeah, when you were off, you just kind of slept the whole weekend and then went back to work, but it was amazing. It was an excellent summer. So through the end of your time at UCF, you were working... Um, doing the internship, but at some point you end up in New Smyrna? Yeah, so um, I took the Florida Master Naturalist program in college. Um, I actually asked my parents to pay for the class as part of my Christmas and birthday gifts. Who does that? Like, who asked their parents to pay for college classes? Um, But I was able to take the course, which introduced me to the Marine Discovery Center. There was a job available for the shuck and share specialist. I applied for it, ended up getting it, and I was still in college at the time. So I was able to work part-time at Marine Discovery Center and finish up my degree. That's a great segue to tell us a little bit about shuck and share, because it's still a a program that's ongoing. Mm -hmm. It's grown quite large. Yep, that's my goal. <laughs> so, so tell us about it. So Shuck and Share was started in 2014 to provide a stable source of oyster shells for shoreline restoration projects. Before then, they were having um, shoreline restoration practitioners were having to pay for fossilized shell or having to source it themselves, and that's really tough. Um, so through grant funding from the Indian River Lagoon Council, we were able to start the program at Marine Discovery Center. Um, 
and recycle shells from local restaurants. So we leave those shells out on our property for six months. We let them cure because none of the shell that we get here is actually local. Um, a lot of the restaurants are getting their oysters from Louisiana, Texas, other states. Um, so by quarantining them, we make sure that they're safe. Then we bag them up into shoreline restoration materials and give them to our partners to deploy on their projects. So to date, we um, collectively have recycled 4.2 million pounds of oyster shells, which is the weight of the space shuttle at takeoff. Pretty wow. fun Florida fact, right? Right. Um, we've been able to expand to six different counties under the Shuck and Share umbrella. And in Volusia County alone, where New Smyrna Beach is based, uh, we have over 20 restaurants that are participating right now. That's pretty amazing. So to back up a little bit, I've, I've heard on a couple of different occasions because the elephant in the room is with Mesquite Lagoon, North Indian River Lagoon, um, probably almost down to Melbourne, we've been having the uh, brown tide mm -hmm. issue. And there have been people that have said, oh, well, it's, it's potentially the way that this began was through oyster shell that came from somewhere else. It, it, has there been any look at that as a potential way that the the brown algae became such an issue around here? Or, I mean, I personally have not thought that that was a, a an issue. Um, I thought it was more, you know, from the cold event back in 2010, and it kind of got things out of balance because we had all of the fish that died during the cold thing. But have you heard anything or have an opinion on it? What's yeah, so um, we as researchers have discussed this at, at when those claims started floating around. Um, but we have to remember that we first started seeing brown tide events in 2010 and then again in 2012. Mm -hmm. And we did not start recycling oyster shells until 2014. Um, currently, there are no guidelines in place for how long we need to quarantine the shell. Okay. But we go by the NOAA standard for other states, which is a minimum of six months. Um, so what we do or what we've done in the past is um, we've quarantined the shell for three months before bagging it up. But then we allow the shell to sit on our property for at least six months before we deploy it back in the lagoon. Um, so we haven't done any studies on our shell but there's no science to point towards um, us releasing more brown algae into our waterways. Well, I think the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> it's, you know, a couple of years later that, right, you right. Know, that you guys didn't even start. So that's awesome to hear that. Um, who are some of the organizations that are taking the shell that you're bringing in with Shuck and Share and then put, deploying it in the lagoon? Because I was telling you earlier when we were sitting on the front porch... Last week, I literally was out on the skiff and running a shoreline, and I saw an inordinate amount of shell bags that were deployed down a shoreline, probably a mile, mile and a half, two miles long, also with mangroves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. plantings. Yeah. And as an angler, as I was going down that shoreline, it's a shoreline that I've rarely if ever fished i mean i have fished it but it's like a little bit on the deeper side it's not like for for the style of fishing that that i do um wouldn't have been somewhere that i would have stopped mm -hmm. but as i was cruising through there this time i was like wow that's looking really good over there and i mean just visually it looked very nice yes so, yeah <laughs> so is that is that like a ucf Graduate student program, what's going on over yeah, there? Yeah, so um, the University of Central Florida, uh, specifically Dr. Linda Walters, has worked in Mosquito Lagoon for over 20 years working on oyster restoration. Um, and they're focusing very strongly on shoreline restoration. So University of Central Florida has done so much work down there as far as restoring acres upon acres of oyster bars. And now they're working on restoring those different um, shorelines. And we put those into linear meters. 
um, of how much shoreline has been repaired. So by putting the oyster bags out, it creates a buffer against all of those storm wakes or the boat wakes or any waves that are coming off of the shoreline, or I'm sorry, off of the water and hitting the shoreline, which reduces erosion. So as you know, Canaveral National Seashore is a very cultural site. There's so many different shell middens there that we mm -hmm. don't even know about right. with all this Native American pottery and, and so much that we can learn about the people that lived here before us. What we're seeing is that a lot of it's eroding and we're missing out on these great, um, this great information that we could learn. So by putting the oyster bags in place and putting the mangroves behind it, we're creating this buffer to protect that history for the future so that we can continue to learn about it. Okay. One of the things that, I don't know if conflicted is the right word, um, I have seen some studies um, and, and, and only reading, like, you know, not going deep, deep, deep into them, but uh, some of the issues, like you're talking about boat wakes and erosion, uh, storms and erosion, and the idea that you're preventing that, at what level do we recognize that there is actually the natural process is there's going to be change to that environment you know i mean you look at maps aerials um you know in the modern there's islands that have disappeared there's mm -hmm. you know and, and that's a natural process so is there a selection process that takes place is this a lot of the placement of the bags is to maybe help preserve and protect archaeologically significant areas or is it just in general we're saying we're, we're trying to create more of a static environment it's more to protect the archaeological areas okay. right now um, so we are aware that there is natural erosion that's going to happen from the wind wakes and from storm wakes but a lot of what we're seeing is caused by boats okay um, and it's just because mosquito lagoon is so shallow you know right. it's going to happen it's, it's just a wide area so if we can mitigate any of that by putting in these restoration materials it's just going to benefit everybody in the long run absolutely okay um, so when we're looking at <laughs> Cabo's apparently uh, everybody knows everybody knows Cabo <laughs> that listens to any of our podcasts I'm not quite sure what he's got at the end of the table but uh, we might need to investigate that a little bit sounds like a bone <laughs> okay so if anybody's hearing uh, what sounds like Bigfoot breaking into the house, it's actually the uh, yellow lab at the end of the table. So <laughs> one of the things that I find most important about the restoration work and the conservation-minded culture that we're all trying to cultivate in Mosquito Lagoon is understanding how absolutely diverse and unique Mosquito Lagoon especially mm -hmm. has when it comes to a very unique genetic redfish population but that's what most of us focus on and we're like you know the redfish, the redfish, the redfish mm -hmm. but there's a whole lot of other organisms that exist well beneath them in that food chain that there's studies that are ongoing that I guess you call a sentinel species, one of which is the horseshoe crab. Mm -hmm. You were talking earlier. What's Is that something you guys at MDC are involved in and support is the... the I think you told me you were doing some tagging. Yeah, yeah. So um, horseshoe crabs, we don't know a lot about their populations in Florida. Um, there's tons of them up in Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. And they're used very frequently in the biomedical industry. Really? Because they have a copper-based blood. Um, so they're able to take out this amoebocyte from their blood and use it to test medicines before giving them to people. And currently, there's no faux method of doing that. So there are literally people that will collect horseshoe crabs, bleed them of 30% or so of their blood, and then release them back into the water. Um, but there's not a lot of studies to see how well they're doing after they're getting bled. Um, so in Florida, we know that we have horseshoe crabs. We've heard from fishermen that their populations are declining. For sure. But we don't have a baseline for that. No one's really been doing a lot of studies on that. So... 
Back in 2008, we started unofficially, informally, collecting data on horseshoe crabs by seeing how many of them were nesting on different beaches in New Smyrna. And as of 2018, we've partnered with the Florida Horseshoe Crab Watch Program, which is an FWC program, to start looking for horseshoe crabs and really collect data on their populations. And parking lot five in Canaveral National Seashore is one of our hot spots for horseshoe crabs. There are times where we will see two mating pairs and there are times where we will see 200 mating pairs. It all just depends on the conditions. But they really flock to that area and we don't know why. And we don't really see a lot of the same ones that we're seeing again. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding these guys that we're trying to figure out. <laughs> so tell, Okay, so something that you just said struck me and I want to know more is when they breed, are they breeding and staying in the water or do they oviposit like up on the beach? Like, so, like I, I mean, yeah. I see them all, you know, I don't see them all the time anymore. There years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there would be hundreds, if not thousands of them. And now it's a treat to see one. Right. Right. So, you know, Typically, we see them in the water, mm-hmm. um, but there's also a mortality rate, or I don't know if they, if, if it's mortality, or do, do they shed their carapace? Like, uh, uh, you know, because as an angler, oftentimes you think you see a redfish that's tailing, and mm-hmm. you're pulling, and you're getting closer, and you're like, oh my God, I got this redfish. And as you get closer, you're like, it's just a dead carapace from a, oh, you know right. bouncing up and down right. in the, and you're like oh shit it's a horseshoe crab off to the next you know <laughs> yeah. target or whatever but so so what what is the behavior uh the mating behavior are, are they going to go up onto the beach is that yeah so um so when they're living they just hang out underwater of course mm-hmm. they're um, underwater creatures, but the male will hook on to the female. We're going to get really deep into this, right? Okay. So the male is going to hook on to the female, bam, and they come bam, up bam. <laughs> at a very, very high tide. Um, so they tend to come up during our new moons and our full moons when the tide reaches higher up on the shoreline. Okay, They'll go ahead and deposit their eggs, deposit their sperm through external fertilization. These eggs will become fertilized and then go back into the water. Now the tides recede over those two weeks or so. When the tides come back up due to the new moon or the high moon, it um, kind of hits the eggs and the eggs know it's time to hatch and the eggs will hatch and go back out into the water. So during this time, they're not underwater. They're in very, very moist sand and it stays very moist. So they're like salt marsh mosquitoes. Yes, I would guess so. That's a good point. Um, What's really interesting about our horseshoe crabs is I'm saying that they come up at new moons and full moons during the high tides, but our crabs don't care about any of that. Our crabs come up in Canaveral National Seashore specifically during westerly tides or westerly winds when it drives the tide farther up on the beach. Okay. So it can be the new moon. It could be the full moon. It could be in between. It could be technically what's supposed to be low tide. As long as that wind is blowing from the west to the east at like 15 plus knots, we are guaranteed to see horseshoe crabs. So there's, there's going to be plenty of people that listen that don't understand the hydrology of Mosquito Lagoon or the North Indian River Lagoon, mm-hmm. for that matter. Um, we're very non-tidal. Micro-tidal, we like micro, to call it. Okay, yeah, micro-tidal. Um, certainly, we get an influence from the inlet at Ponce, but from Ponce Inlet to parking lot five, What's that, 22, 23 miles probably? Yeah, yeah. And I think like if you if you average it out, you know, on time, because, you know, whenever we're looking at Riverside Drive, we say it's plus two hours or whatever. It's like plus six hours from the inlet. It's, it's opposite. opposite yeah, tides. Yeah, it's opposite. But even then, you can put a stick in the ground and come back two hours later, and it's not going to change. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about sometimes, you know, the fact that, you know, the closer you get to the inlet, Certainly, you can see the incoming and the outgoing tide, that slack tide, all that. You know, the water is either moving in one direction or the other or not moving at all. But we have very little vertical. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you get down towards, like you're saying, parking lot five, which, you know, George's Bar in South, you have an estuary that's on average two miles wide suddenly become six miles to eight miles wide. And deeper at that point, 
So the water that's pouring in, there's just no vertical movement. So that's interesting. I would have never thought. Right, yeah. And it's wind-driven, and and it's that west wind. So anybody that happens to definitely fish in the lagoon that's listening, start paying attention on those westerly winds. If you see horseshoe crabs, please call me. (laughs) More importantly, you you (laughs) talked about there's actually a tagging program going Mm -hmm. on, and there's very few reports of tagged horseshoe crabs. Right. So talk us through if we were to happen to see a horseshoe crab or a mating pair, how do we know it's been tagged? And then what do we do to recover and report the tag information? So when we find horseshoe crabs, we tag every single crab that we see. Um, We put a large white disc about the size of a half dollar, or if it's a smaller crab, it's about the size of a quarter, onto the left-hand side of the crab, right behind their eye line. And since they're... um, How's it attached? um, We actually punch a hole in the crab very gently um, and put it in. It's a one-way screw, essentially, that won't pop back out. So it's like a pop rivet or Mm -hmm. something. Yeah, yeah. So um, since they're done molting, they're never going to molt again. We don't have to worry about it getting caught caught they're just kind of stuck with this piece of hardware like a piercing is it, is it, what's what's the tag um it's it's large and it's white and it has a number on it okay. and a website to follow so okay. that if you do find a crab whether it's alive or it's dead just snap a picture of it on your phone and go up online onto the u.s fish and wildlife website and input the number for us um one one cool what, are, thing, what are the important things to to be prepared to report like Location, GPS coordinates, if you can get Location would be great, and whether or not the crab is alive or dead, I think is the only couple of things that they're asking. Yeah, it's super easy. They just want to know where you found this crab. Um, We did tag a crab crab up on uh, Riverside Drive, South Causeway area, and found it a couple years later down at Canaveral National Seashore. So that's five and a half miles as the crow flies, and this crab survived Hurricane Irma. So that's like probably the coolest crab that we've seen, but that's one of the only ones that we've found again. Um, even though we've tagged hundreds of crabs in the past few years, we've only have a handful of recaptures. Wow. Okay. So everybody keep an eye out for horseshoe crabs <laughs> and look for a quarter to a half dollar sized white disc on the left side behind the eye, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, <laughs> cool. So, uh, are there any other interesting, like little tidbits of things that are going on, like study wise that... One of the things that I, I've noticed, and you know, you may or may not know what, what it is, there's a couple of areas, kind of let's call it in the area of Eldora, between Eldora and Oak Hill, off of Slippery Creek, where it's like almost like an elevated walkway has been built back into the marsh. Mm. And, and it's clear that, you know, somebody's doing some kind of study to be, and they must pull up, get up, and they're able to walk back into the marsh and back out. I, you know, I'm not aware of anything okay. like that now. Yeah, because I've been that watching it for years that. and been like, what are they looking at? What are they studying? Just wondering. No, I don't know. It might be Florida Fish and Wildlife doing some biodiversity studies back there. UCF has uh, so many different projects going on, but, yeah, nothing that I'm aware of. Okay. So let's talk more. Let's you know go back to Marine Discovery Center. One of the other things, one of that, um, and and this is Marine Discovery Center is definitely leading the charge, talking about and 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 bringing heightened awareness to the situation. Um, and there's a, a groundswell of people in New Smyrna Beach that find it very important. Thankfully to try to keep the beach clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that we're doing it is we're starting to learn more and more about plastics and microplastics. And, you know, there's different companies out there, you know, that have kick plastic programs and, and things like that. And I'm kind of cynical. Um, not that we don't need to keep the environment clean. I'm 100% there with that. But it's like, it's not the existence of a single-use plastic that's the problem. And, and, and correct me, and that's why I'm, we're having this conversation. It's not the existence of that single-use plastic. It's the irresponsible use mm-hmm. of the single-use plastic. Mm-hmm. So those pieces, the, that single-use plastic, 
oftentimes irresponsible user finds its way into the waterway and it becomes it gets broken down mm-hmm. and the big problem that you all are starting to learn about and and are talking about is microplastics right right yeah so what what's the what's the significance of microplastics so microplastics are defined as any piece of plastic that's less than five millimeters in size. Um, they can come from a primary source, which is a microbead um, or any type of plastic that's made to be that small, or a secondary source, which is a larger piece of plastic that has broken down. And that's usually what we're seeing in our studies. Um, the problem with microplastics is that they're so small that oysters are filtering them in you know, um, as they're filtering water and not filtering them back out or fish are eating them because all they see is this brilliant red piece of whatever in the water and it looks tasty to them and they're not able to extrude it back out. Um, So it is going to cause those larger issues with our wildlife and um, just they may be eating it and they aren't able to expel it. Uh, We do know that animals will eat them and then they feel like they're full so they're actually starving to death because there's no room left in their stomach since there's so much plastic in it. So what we're focusing on at Marine Discovery Center is working with the University of Central Florida on a project to collect water samples from around Mosquito Lagoon Mm -hmm. um, to see what kind of microplastics are we finding? What colors are they? Are they fibers? Are they fragments? Are they films? What are we seeing and where are they coming from? Because the theory right now is that quite a few of the, the microplastics that we're seeing are coming off of our... Uh, polyester fishing shirts. Oh, really? Um, they're coming off of old boat ropes that haven't been attended to, that have been sitting in the sun. Like the old nylon style Yeah, ropes. that as soon as you pick it up and you twist it, it's frays into the air. That's all microplastics, you know? So it's these things that we just need to be more cognizant of and be, um, you know, a little bit better educated when we become consumers pretty much and opt more for natural fibers such as cotton as opposed to opting for polyester. But it's going to take a huge cultural shift as far as us being able to get rid of all single-use plastics. So I, I don't know. I, no one's going to be the perfect but, environmentalist, but, you know? Yeah, <laughs> no, and, and, and that's why, you know, a lot of times I always talk about it is it's not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Um, do what you can do what you're comfortable with. You know, if, if, if it's about the fact that, you know, you might not abandon single use plastics because let's be honest, you know, it's Florida, you Mm -hmm. know, the, the environment, you've got to have water. So some people are going to ultimately be on the way to be on the beach or be on the water and they don't have a reusable jug. But they definitely are going to need water that afternoon. So they're right. going to stop at the Seven Eleven and they're going to pick up a couple of bo- you know bottled waters. But, but be responsible your, about yeah, it. Yeah, bring right. bring your own coffee cup to the coffee shop on the way into town. You know what I mean? Like if you're the type of person that goes out for coffee every morning, I do Island Roasters. Okay. Um, bring your own tumbler. Like why opt for a plastic paper or paper cup when you could just bring your own and wash it out? So it's become second nature to me now that if I don't have a reusable cup and straw with me, I won't stop for coffee because I'll feel so guilty about using that single use because I've gotten so used to bringing my own. Okay, so and, and that's a cultural shift. Yes, yeah. Um, but, but something that you said, like just with like the rope, that's not really, you know, I don't identify rope as being a single-use item, but, it, you know, or, or even the, as people like to call it, technical clothing, mm-hmm. you know, and it's meant for comfort, SPF protection, all that. But the unintended consequences. Right. Wow. Right. You yeah. Know? And I mean, like if I looked at what I'm wearing today, I'm sure a lot of it is polyester or some rayon or whatever else, right. you know, um, man-made particle is. And, and it's not like we're trying to say, oh, no, you shouldn't use boat ropes. It's just one of those that, hey, if we're aware if that this choice, is happening, yeah. well, let's do an educational campaign and figure out how often we as fishermen need to replace our boat ropes. And can we put a program in place where the state helps us replace our boat ropes more often so that they're being recycled and repurposed as opposed to sitting on docks rusting away or, or you know breaking up, that kind of thing. So this is in the very early stages of that project. Right. We, it's more of a hypothesis right now. Um, Nothing's been completely quantified. No, no. Okay. So, but it's it's something that we're trying to think about. Like, what are we seeing? Um, and 
Florida uh, Microplastics Awareness Project has uh, said that about 87% of the microplastics we're finding in our samples are fibers. So that's more, you know, the general consumer making better choices in what they're wearing. So let's play word association. And it's actually more of a phrase because it's going to be multiple words. And I want your reaction. Sounds fun. <laughs> Mylar balloons. Awful. <laughs> Don't release them into the sky. It, you know, they're super groovy. Um, you know, a lot of Valentine hearts. Mm -hmm. You know, they look cool. But, my gosh, I don't go out ever and not find deflated, nasty Mylar bags in the water in Mosquito Lagoon. Not ever. Yeah. Yeah, I found one recently, actually, when I was doing horseshoe crab surveys, tucked up underneath a mangrove. So do you, do you ever see or foresee a change in, in that? Um, I think that... I mean, one of the, let, let's, you know, one of the biggest offenders is Disney. Right, right. I, I think that the bigger issue is the releasing of the balloons for loved ones. Um, and I feel like there is a cultural shift happening. If um, There's been a couple of, you know, Facebook posts I've seen recently where, for example, Six Flags released a ton of balloons with one-day tickets in it. And oh, no. people were so angry. You'd think that these people would be elated, you know, in Texas. Right. They're like, yeah, I'm going to get a free ticket. They're like burning the tickets. They were so mad that they had the audacity to release thousands of balloons. So I do feel like there is a cultural shift happening when it comes to that. I don't think there's anything wrong with buying a balloon for your kid's birthday or, or my birthday. Right. You know, just dispose of it properly. Okay. So when you are not at the Marine Discovery Center, what are some of the uh, things that you do for fun? Do you spend a lot of time out? In the lagoon or, or on the beach or what? What's... You'd think. Um, in my spare time, I am actually a crocheting mermaid who mermaid who plays roller derby. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about roller derby. I've never been to a roller derby game. Is it a game? It's about. We call it about. About. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, well, we'll have to get you tickets. Yeah, we'll I'd to get you out there. I've got to go. But, um, yeah, pretty much we skate around a track, and we hit people as hard as we possibly can, um, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so so where, where is a, like, is it a normal skating rink, or is it, like... It depends on the league that you skate for. Okay. Um, there are girls that skate in skating rinks, outdoor hockey rinks, um, parking garages, pretty much anywhere you can find a spot to make a track, we will go and skate it. Okay. So how is roller derby scored? So instead of having a ball, okay. we have a girl with a star on her helmet, and her goal is to get through the rest of the girls. Now, each time she passes the opposing girls, she scores one point per person, so she can score up to four points in a pass. And a jam goes on for two minutes, and she skates around as many times as she can in that two minutes and scores as many points as she can. And how many jams per game? It depends. So um, okay. we'll have a two-minute long jam and then a 30-second reset, but the lead jammer can call off the jam earlier than two minutes. And this is where we get into the 167 pages worth of rules. So <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get into that, but, you know, there's quite a few. It lasts for about two hours total, even though game time is only about an hour long. Holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> you wow. burn a lot of calories. It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> so uh, any injuries from... Uh... I, um, years? I, so I've been skating for about 10 years now. I started playing roller derby when I first moved to Florida. I needed to find some friends, and I thought this would be a great way to do it. Um, I actually sprained my ankle once about a month before my sea turtle internship. Um, but other than that, no injuries, knock on wood. <laughs> so, yeah. So you also mentioned uh, Mermaid. Mm -hmm. Yep. And tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I... I follow you on Instagram, the Spiky <laughs> Mermaid, so I already know. 
but uh... yeah, so um, Marine Discovery Center actually has a mermaid on staff. Her name is Mermaid Tracy. Um, her secondhand job is as our volunteer coordinator, but um, she legit trained at Wikiwachi State Park as a mermaid. Um, in their mermaid camp. And when I met her and learned more about mermaiding, she's like, well, if you want to try on my tail, let's go to the springs. So we went out to the springs. She let me try on her tail. And it was like I had finally found this piece of me that had been missing. It was the most magical experience ever, just putting on this tail and diving into the springs and going all the way down to the bottom and coming back up. I was hooked. So I call her my mermaid mentor. Um, she helped me find one of my first tails. We go swimming together all the time. We like to play hooky. Uh -huh. And um, we'll play sick days, you know, and go swimming. Don't tell my boss. Um, but it's been awesome. So whenever we have events at Marine Discovery Center, Tracy is our mermaid. But I'm allowed to do, like, the secondhand mermaiding stuff, second string. So I love it, though. It's so much fun. So when you swim with that tail, like, it, it's got to be, like, a very different way to swim. You, you kick like a dolphin. Okay. It's a dolphin kick. Okay. So, yeah, and um, we focus mostly on swimming in the springs because it's so clear. Right. Um, and then you can open up your eyes and you, you feel safe and stuff. But the tails weigh about 27 to 35 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, they're made out of silicone. Uh, mine's made out of silicone and neoprene, so it's a little bit lighter. But, yeah, it definitely it gets you down to the bottom, and then you get to have a, a fun time swimming back up. So... You do backflips and stuff like that. But it, it's really fun working events as a mermaid because you get this whole, we call it a mersona. You get this whole mersona going, um, and the kids believe that you're real. And if they think you're fake, they usually want to believe that you're real. So you can say, like, well, I'm real. You're, you're real. I'm real. Like, what's the difference? And they're like, oh, okay, that works. And they're like, well, you don't look like a mermaid I've seen before. And it's like, well, all humans are different, right? Why wouldn't mermaids be different? And they're like, oh totally believable. So it's really fun to kind of, you know, work with those kids and turn them into believers. That's cool. It's like, uh, you know, they might not believe in Santa Claus anymore, but they're going to, but leave. they're going to believe they're that a mermaid's real. Mermaid. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, tell me the, the goals that you have for the next year at Marine Discovery Center and how, the dinghy derby that we're putting on, if we can help you with funding, what are what are the goals that you're looking to achieve? Yeah, so um, currently with our Shark and Share program, we use a plastic-based Naltex brand mesh for our oyster bags. Now, it's a marine-grade mesh. It's, it's aquaculture farming, so it doesn't break down. It doesn't leach chemicals, but it's still a plastic, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to use plastic. Um, so what we've been working on with researchers is finding an alternative to that plastic and everything that we're working on is way more expensive than the plastic bags are. We've been testing out uh, metal cages. We've been testing out concrete and cement slurries and aggregates, um, testing out coconut jute. There's a lot of stuff that's going into the lagoon right now um, that we're working on testing that if we need to start doing those instead of making oyster bags, it's going to cost a couple thousand dollars to get that into production. And that's money that we don't have in our grant funding right now. So since we're actively working on these alternatives, it would be amazing, you know, to have a little bit of help um, right. to get us up and running to fulfill those requirements from our partners. Gives you the flexibility. It does, yeah, it def definitely Cause, does. Because you're, you, you mentioned grant funding. Mm -hmm. So when you guys are grant funded, is it a yearly basis? So you're continuously reapplying for grants yeah so, so it's like almost unsure every year what you're gonna you know what level of of work that you can do yeah so so I've been at Marine Discovery Center for five years and I work solely on soft funding um, I have to reapply for grants every single year to secure a position as a coordinator for this program and also secure funding for my program um, and it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, because, you know, grants don't want to keep funding the same program time after time after time. Uh, but it's been deemed an asset to our community since we are creating these materials for our partners. So we've been very lucky to be able to partner with University of Central Florida um, to go through those grant cycles together. But still, it's soft funding. So every single year, I am looking for different grants to be able to fund this program. And I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Right. So... When you're talking about the concrete, um, is it almost like, like a reef ball style 
Um, um, there's a couple of different methods that are being tested right now. One is called a oyster core, um, which is being worked on by University of Florida up at the Whitney Lab. And it's a cement aggregate that has oyster shells tucked in the top. Um, and it's kind of like this big pie tin almost filled with um, this secret mix of blend and spices, we like to call it. That's right. mostly cement-based with oysters tucked in the top and then put out along the shoreline. So the oyster, if you were looking at a pumpkin pie. Mm-hmm. So it's like a pumpkin pie. With oysters. With oyster <laughs> shells sticking out of sticking the top. Sticking up, yeah. yeah. Because, so for those of that, that happen to be listening that don't understand it, what happens like what what's the what's the purpose of a bag full of oyster shells or one of these oyster pies we'll call it how does it work how does it recruit new oysters and what's the importance of oysters mm-hmm. In our lagoon. So our oyster species, the um, eastern oyster, Crassostrea virginica, has to attach onto something hard for it to be successful. So when it is our baby oysters floating in the water, they're called spat, they need to find something hard or else they perish. So they'll attach onto the bottoms of boats, they'll attach onto dock pilings, onto rocks. We've seen oysters attach onto um, shopping carts that have been tossed in the lagoon. But the best thing for them to attach onto are other oyster shells. So by putting out these oyster restoration materials on the shoreline and on sandbars, we're creating oyster condos in a sense that oysters can attach onto and create new generations. So the oyster bags help to buffer wakes and create that habitat. And these oyster cores that we're testing out focus more on just accruiting oysters onto them. How, how would it be exclusive to just recruiting oysters the profile is a little bit shorter um so the oyster bags i call them the english muffin of the sea they have a lot of nooks and crannies that can accumulate sediment so if a boat wake or a wave were to come up and over the bag all of that sand would roll into the bag as opposed to rolling down into the bottom of the lagoon because it's getting caught in the nooks and crannies right the oyster cores don't have that as much so the sand would still wash over but it has the relief of those oysters sticking up that baby oysters could attach onto that. And then over generations, it will create that buffer. And as the the spat attaches to that, they're going to grow upward? They'll grow up and out. Up and out. And then eventually they will connect with each other. And then as they go through their life cycle, it's like it becomes regenerative. Yeah, so so um, as they grow up, new baby oysters will grow onto them. Um, sediment will accumulate into it, and eventually the shoreline itself will eventually raise in elevation as the oysters start to grow. So that cement block will be trapped underground and eventually biodegrade and just turn into sediment pretty much. Get pulverized mm-hmm. and, and turn into substrate. Yeah. So from the time that a little... Baby oyster is cruising along on the tide and finds his new home. How long until I might go to the the local pearl and and enjoy said oyster? What's what's the life? Yeah, cycle? for for a wild harvested oyster, um, it takes about two weeks for it to turn from an embryo into a spat that needs to attach, and then about three to five years for it to reach adulthood where it's at a harvestable size. So I believe the harvestable size is two to three inches. Um, so as soon as it reaches that, it's allowed to be harvested off for restaurants, and that takes about three years. So that's why we say um, we need at least three to five years to stabilize a reef um, before we can start harvesting off of it. And we need at least three to five years worth of research to see if these alternative methods will work better than the plastics to do so. What, what has been or has there been a reduction in the amount of oyster in, Globally, yeah, and and in our lagoon too. And is it due to consumption or is it environmental? A variety of factors. Over harvesting is one. Um, the brown tides that we've been having here is another. Um, over, I said over harvesting, and then. Um, The other one is our sea level rise. So our oysters here in Florida are intertidal, which means that they're above the high tide or above the low tide on the banks. Mm -hmm. And then when the high tide comes up, they go underwater. um, And that's the way that they thrive. So they're only uh, around predators 50% of the time, as opposed to subtidal oysters who are around predators underwater 100% of the times. So as the sea levels start to rise, we're seeing more predation from different animals, such as crown conchs or fish or birds or that kind of thing. Okay. I would have never imagined. I, I had no idea that 
birds and fish preyed on oysters. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So there's a lot that do. <laughs> okay. But crown conchs is, is probably the biggest predator we have in our area, and boring sponge too. The crown conch is the the one that you see with like the huge orange foot. Is that or is that um, that's no? A river that's probably um, that sounds like a horse conch. Horse conch. Yeah, okay. horse conch, which is the state shell of Florida. Um, the crown conch is a smaller conch. It's speckled black and white, and it's endemic to the central Florida area. Okay. So. Two weeks, I believe, after the dinghy derby, which uh, we're hoping that lots of people come out, participate in the dinghy derby, lots of people come out and participate in the raffle uh, at the dinghy derby so that we can raise even more money than we did last year to make sure that we have the funding in place for your programs to thrive. Um, Two weeks after that, there is a event coming up at MDC called Laguna Sea. Mm-hmm. Yep, April 18th from 11 to 4. And what is Laguna Sea? Laguna sea is super fun. <laughs> it is our largest fundraiser of the year. It's um, We have hundreds of vendors that come out. We have food trucks. We have educational stations. We have a conservation carnival uh, mermaids in tanks, uh, finger painting, art activities. But I think our biggest part of it is the cardboard boat race. Oh, tell me more. Yeah, so, right? It's so exciting. Um, we run a cardboard boat race out of our marsh where different individuals or teams can put together a cardboard boat and see if it floats. And if you do, you win some super fun prizes. If you don't, it's a great laugh for the crowd. But, I mean, our lagoon's only four feet deep, so just stand up and you'll be fine. But, yeah, everybody comes out and creates a cardboard boat. This year we're making sure that everything is recyclable. We're using paper-based tape only so that we can recycle all of them Ooh, afterwards. going to be kind of a challenge. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might be floating, but you better get from point A to point B pretty quick, Yeah, right? so it's been it's cool. We have, um, we have different heats that go on, so we have little kids that go out. We have school groups and clubs that go out, and then we have the adults that come out. So just build a boat that floats pretty much is the goal. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we have uh, a rich history of... Uh, Toying around with boat building, so uh, maybe, I think you guys have to build a boat and come on we'll, out. We'll yeah, that'll partake. be the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in addition to the the boat race, um, you're saying tons of vendors, and this is this all takes place around MDC. It's on the MDC property, so it takes place. Um, on our site around our amphitheater, all of the vendors that come out are sustainable or conservation-minded mm-hmm. vendors. Um, a lot of educational vendors uh, talking about otters, whales, dolphins, sea turtles. It's a great educational day to come out and teach your kids about the lagoon, but also enjoy the outdoors. So the amphitheater, that's pretty new. It is, yeah. And we're stoked because we're going to be doing the thingy before the dinghy on the Friday night before the dinghy derby. Um, I know I was at a city commission meeting here in New Smyrna Beach earlier this week. There's actually quite a bit of programming that's getting put in place for being outdoors, whether there's some... um, There was one in particular, and now I'm going to put myself on the spot. Um, There's a program coming up at the amphitheater, Mm -hmm. the Ocean Research. Yeah, O-Search is coming out to give a presentation. Mm -hmm. And I am absolutely stoked to see that. I mean, because let's let's talk sharks. I mean, we're shark bite capital of the world, right? We are, yeah. And we're we're (laughs) having the number one shark research outfit coming and it's going to do a talk at the at the amphitheater. Pretty pretty stoked. Yeah. Did you see that clip recently um, that one of the surfers posted of all the sharks yes. in the inlet? Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah, crazy <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure it's just you know a typical migration or mm-hmm. or probably a mating. Uh, yeah, I think um, Chad said it best that it's a migration northward as the sharks are as our waters are warming up, they're just coming in closer to feed, right. and they're just kind of migrating to and fro. Yeah. So, all right. Well, um, I think we're probably at a point where the last thing I want to talk to you about is you mentioned crochet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So you spend time. It's almost like knitting, right? It is, but with a hook, a single hook. With a single hook. Mm -hmm. And what do you crochet? It's called amigurumi. Um, They're little stuffed animals. So I crochet custom-made stuffed animals for people who want them, um, such as purple dinosaurs or mermaids or octopuses or anything that anyone wants. I'm willing to take the opportunity to crochet it. So if any of our listeners happen to have a kid that they wanted an octopus or whatever, how would they get in touch with you? So I have a Facebook page. It's called Spiky Mermaid Crafts. Perfect. And it's an homage to my roller derby name and my passion as a mermaid and the fact that I do crafting things. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Well, listen, we're looking forward to putting on the event and trying to raise as much money as we can so that you have supplemental funding beyond the soft funding that you're looking for every year. We're going to keep doing it as long as we can. Um, Is there anything final that you want to tell anybody about Marine Discovery Center that you feel like we haven't touched on? Well, um, we've been around for 20 years. Um, We are a wonderful big part of the community. And honestly, I just want to say thank you to you and your listeners for giving us this opportunity to give us a voice outside of our small New Smyrna Beach community I think it's amazing the stuff that you guys are working on and, and how far the podcast reaches. And thank you to each and every single one of you who came out to the Dingy Derby last year. And I hope to see you guys this year because we definitely plan on coming out. There's, there's an opportunity for anybody that's in the Dingy Derby at stop five, the final stop over on the sandbar by JB's, that there may be a mermaid on the dock at JB's looking for a ride over to the sandbar. I mean, I'm just saying. (laughs) uh, We would love to have you come out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, (laughs) The whole idea behind the dinghy derby is to have a good time, raise awareness for the need for the conservation and the restoration of Mosquito Lagoon. Um, I could probably pin you down for an hour and talk about, you know, what we need to do with, uh, impoundments and stuff like that but this isn't the the right venue for it but uh, i want to say to you thank you on a sunday afternoon sunday evening coming over hanging out having a couple of beers and uh talking about what we all love which is our estuary and one thing i just remembered is you're also on the citizen advisory council for the indian river lagoon Yeah, the Indian River Lagoon Council, which is one of our um, main funding for grants across the Indian River Lagoon. Um, I am the co-chair of their Citizen Advisory Committee. So we get together quarterly to talk about educational opportunities in the lagoon and how to spread the word out there and and receive more funding and, and just educate folks about what how wonderful it is. So the the important reason that I brought that up, and we'll close out with uh that is Jesse has taken a route that left Pennsylvania via the low country, which a ton of listeners in the low country, a ton of people that love to visit the low country ends up down here in Florida. Thankfully she's here in our local town at the Marine discovery center because she does the same thing that we do. She loves the shit out of the Indian (laughs) river lagoon And we're happy to be able to support you. And we're looking forward to seeing you. Hopefully the Dingy Derby. Definitely at Lagunacy. Yes. And appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. Thanks so much for having me. All right. (laughs) Talk to you. Yeah.